calling all denizens of the dark, mavens of mayhem, and champions of chaos. Lock your doors and listen close. It's time for another episode of Spies, Lies, and Private Eyes. Here's your host, Terrence McCauley. Hello, everyone. I am Terrence McCauley, and welcome to another edition of Spies, Lies, and Private Eyes on the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. My guest today is Matt Coyle, the author of the Rick Cahill crime novels. He knew he wanted to be a crime writer at the age of 14 when his father gave him The Simple Art of Murder by Raymond Chandler. And I could speak for myself where Raymond Chandler is definitely the gateway drug for <laughs> many crime writers. After graduating from the University of California at Santa Barbara with a degree in English, he spent the next 30 years in a variety of jobs, such as managing a restaurant, working in the golf industry, and in national sales for a sports licensing company. Doomed Legacy is his latest entry in the award-winning Rick Cahill series, and it will be available wherever books are sold on November 15th from Ocean View Publishing. Thank you for being here, Matt. This is great to have you here. Hey, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Oh, no problem at all. Um, for those people who might not be familiar with your work, why don't you tell us a little bit about your Rick Cahill series? Sure. First, I want to say that uh, it looks like I've been shot in the face with birdshot, but I went to a, uh, my dermatologist on Friday and she burned some stuff off. Oh, um, okay. You should see my hands. But anyway, um, <laughs> I'm much prettier. Uh, in a couple of days, I'll be much prettier. Uh, okay. So Rick Cahill is a former cop. Um, I think it's been about 18 years, maybe, when Doom Legacy starts that his wife was murdered when he was a cop on the Santa Barbara Police uh, Force. He was arrested for the murder. He was never tried, released, but never exonerated and thought by many to be the guy who got away with murder. He ended up moving back to his hometown of San Diego and couldn't get a job and couldn't get a job in law enforcement. Went to work for his buddy, a longtime friend, Turk Muldoon at um, Muldoon Steakhouse. And uh, in the first book, Yesterday's Echo, he meets uh, a woman, sort of a femme fatale, and uh, she gets in trouble and tries to help her. And since that book, he's become a private investigator, kind of wants to get back more or less to his roots of trying to help people. Mm -hmm. But in, in doing so, well, for one thing, he, he feels whether he killed his wife or not, he feels responsible for her death because of the actions he took on the night she died and the actions he didn't take. And so he tends to get emotionally involved in his cases, at least the ones I write about. And because he's striving to redeem himself. He thinks that, um, you know, he's responsible in some ways for his wife's death. How can I redeem myself? And so he gets a little too involved sometimes in cases. And that involvement um, sometimes can lead to some bad choices. And the people he's trying to help sometimes get hurt in some ways. Um, but he's very, he's very dogged. He's, um, he lives by his father's code, which his father, a disgraced ex-cop as well. Sometimes you have to do what's right, even when the law says it's wrong. And he definitely adheres to that and it can get him into trouble. And um, as Doom Legacy, well, the one thing when I started writing this series 20 years ago, it took me 10 years to get published. I didn't know anything about writing. I didn't know anything about writing right. novels. I mean, I said, like we talked about, I read Chandler, but crime my whole life, read McDonald, Hammett, Agatha Christie, you know, um, along the list. Um, 
I didn't know anything about writing, although I had a degree in English. I didn't know about writing books, but I had one. I had two rules. One was Rick would not get; he had to go it alone. Um, he would not have a sidekick, a, a physical sidekick, a funny sidekick, or a financially beneficial sidekick. And um, after the first book, I got rid of that, and I introduced Moira McFarland, who's this um, real sassy uh, private eye who keeps Rick in his place and feels kind of like he's a Rick's his little brother and needs, although it's only a couple of years difference and needs her guidance. Um, and they have kind of a, they have a sibling antagonistic um, relationship, but they care each other for each other deeply. Um, so I broke that rule, but the other rule was everything had to matter. And right. I think uh, I go back to like Chinatown, which is my favorite movie. And mm -hmm. you see- uh, Good choice. Yeah. You see uh, Nicholson, Mr. Gitz, Gittis, when he's yep. uh, at the reservoir and on the runoff and uh, Roman Polanski slits his nose with a knife, you know. So right. the rest of the movie, and that's probably, I think it's the at the latest, a third into the movie, maybe a quarter in the movie. So the rest of the movie, you either see him with a honking ba uh, bandage on his face or when he's making love to Faye Dunaway, it comes off and you see these really nasty um, stitches. Right. And that's what I wanted to portray, like when... If Rick gets a, a cracked rib in the first uh, chapter, that's going to carry over. He's gonna, by the end of the book, he's still he's still in pain there, and as well, the um, emotional scars have to carry over, and that's kind of the way the series has gone. But back to the right. physical, um, back to the physical, the guys. He was a he boxed Golden Gloves as a kid. He played football, um, Pop Warner, call, high school, a little bit of college. He's had multiple concussions as a private investigator. So I'm, this is, I'm writing book eight a couple of years ago. And I think, well, shit, this guy's got to have CTE or be at least chronic traumatic encephalopathy, the pro football disease. He's either, right. yeah, I mean, they, they don't, you don't get a true diagnosis until the patient dies and then you cut open his head. But every mm -hmm. football player they've ever looked at it for has had it. So I, just, I said I had to give it to him. And um, my publisher wasn't particularly happy about it because it, leads to uh, you know diminished cognitive abilities, dementia, and generally early death. But right. I didn't see if I'm going to be true to everything matters, everything carries over, he has to have this disease. So he had it, comes about in the last book, Last Redemption, and Doomed Legacy, he now has a family. He's got a, a, a wife and a daughter. His daughter is, I think, 18 months old in this book, uh, or 14 months. Um, but he's one of the symptoms of this disease can be erratic kind of um, uncontrollable rages and he's starting to get those and right. he's trying to he's trying to hide it from his wife he tries to and then and the, and the provocation is nothing it's everyday life something can flip the switch and so he tries to hide it from his wife uh, when they're starting to get an argument he just takes off he goes in the his um, garage gym and pounds the heavy bag um but it's causing a problem even even though he's mostly hiding from his wife the fact that he's not going to talk about things is causing a problem so as uh doom legacy opens up um he's uh they get there's there's a altercate there's a they have an argument he runs off it's like two in the morning comes back and his wife says i'm taking uh his wife's leah his daughter's krista taking krista my parents in santa barbara and uh you're not coming with us and so he's dealing with that as well as uh, he's trying to, you know, how do I get my life back together? It's not an end deal, but it's, you know, it's a, it's definitely a rift in the, uh, in their relationship. 
In the meantime, he's, he works for his private eye, and, and, and because he has a family now, he is taking less dangerous cases. He got a good gig where he's doing background checks for a company that has a, a civilian side, and they're also a defense contractor for radar and sonar and something called LIDAR, which I learned about. Um, oh, okay. Yes. Yeah. That's, yeah. Uh, that's big on a lot of the uh, archaeology shows now. Yeah. Yeah. And I can see why. Um, mm -hmm. Anyway, so he does background checks for the civilian side and there's a, a defense, there's a, a governmental agency that does it for the contractor side and his contact there, because this is his biggest account, asked for kind of a personal favor, something involving uh, kind of a, to him, his inner office politics, but he, he decides to help because they developed sort of a distance friendship through emails and, and phone calls. And uh, she ends up getting uh, raped and murdered by a, seemingly a serial rapist that's hitting Southern California. And uh, Rick, even though Rick had nothing to do with it, he's engaged her. He feels responsible. Not responsible. He feels, I like to say responsible, but something happened on his watch and he has to get to the bottom of it. Of course, right. he bangs up against the cops. They're not happy. They have their own um, ideas of what happened and they don't need him. And uh, he goes on a trail that leads him to um, uh, kind of a sinister private investigative agency, a shady cell corporation, and mm -hmm. uh, this defense contractor. And that's the bit of the story. And that's a long background on Rick. But um, there you go. Book nine. Now I, book nine. Yeah, well, I was going to say you've got your nine books deep into this series. How, and I know you mentioned how your publisher didn't like you giving him something that's going to diminish him long term. Have you heard back from your fans in the audience about how they feel about such a condition for your character? You know, I think they, I think they appreciate the challenge. Um, I don't necessarily know if they're really, the, the ones that die hard Rick fans. I don't know if they're really happy about it because they care for him, which is, I mean, that's the coolest thing you could possibly have people that care about your characters. Mm -hmm. uh, but you know they're they're in for the they're in for the ride. What's going to happen next? Um, I don't even know if I'm ecstatic about it, but I kind of felt that was a rule I had to keep, and I didn't see how he could get away. I mean, clearly he could, but um, sure. it makes things more challenging. And um, for me, when I'm starting a book, I always I mean I have a premise, and there's a target out there. The ending's out there as my target. But the, the thing I really start with is what is Rick's major subplot? Because it's about right. character for me. And um, what is going on in his personal life that taking a case can exacerbate and vice versa. Um, so I launched on to launched on or grabbed onto this um, CTE and um, it's, uh, it's been a challenge, but fun. I mean, I've challenged myself before. Right. Right. Yeah, it sounds like it. Now, are there any other elements that uh, evolve throughout the series that you started in book one or book two, and that you've uh, that have taken a different uh, tactic, if you will, or a different evolution than you would planned on, beside the character of his his partner? Yeah. Well, I, I will say I never intended to give him a potentially fatal disease. Mm -hmm. You know, and I. I First of all, I didn't really know what I was doing when I started, but um, I did have those two rules. And of course I broke one of them, but um, I will say that with this evolution, it's just gotten darker. And I think that's not that unusual. Um, right. I mean, when I first started writing him, like I said, 20 years ago, um, 
it was too autobiographical and, and a very good San Diego writer named um, Alan Russell had the misfortune of reading 30 pages of an early draft at the very first writers conference I went to Southern California mm-hmm. writers conference. And he said, Hey, you know, you can write, but it's just too autobiographical. And it was, it was, it was, it was, it was much lighter. It was uh, more repartee-ish than probably now. There are some light moments, particularly between Rick and Moira now. I mean, right. you can't have the dark, 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 but um, it definitely got much start. The further away I got from my own experiences, the better and the darker it got. And which is where I wanted to go anyway. I just didn't really know how to get there. But once, right. um, once I figured, actually what really happened, really happened, I've mentioned this before, but in all these revisions in the first draft, when I was revising, a sentence came to me out of the ether on my subconscious, which um, is a much better writer than I am, came to me, which became the first sentence of Yesterday's Echo, which is the first time I saw her, she made me remember and she made me forget. And then I knew there's, it's, his life's been much harder than, than I portrayed. It's been very dark. And um, that completely opened up his backstory to me and really changed um, the trajectory of what I was doing. And I'm sure it helped me get published. Um, but I, I would just say I, I didn't, you know, I probably didn't expect to get as dark as I've gotten. I mean, he's done some things that um, you know, aren't good. And right. he's justified it like everybody does. And, but he does grapple with that. He, he's not immune to the fact that he's, He's being judge, jury, and in a couple instances, executioner. And he realizes that's not the way it should be, but he's thinking about people's safety. And, um, but it's not something that's just thrown off. He definitely grapples with these decisions. Right, right. And I know you said that when you started this, your first draft was more autobiographical. Yeah. Uh, and then when I read your uh, biography earlier, uh, your, your brief bio here, it's you said that you had a lot of different roles in life and i was wondering how much of that made it into your work what kind of uh inspiration did you have from your career that uh influenced the first draft of the book well i'd probably say not much um well what i what i did learn um well i mean my bro i've got um family in law enforcement or family that have passed that were been in law enforcement for years. My brother-in-law was a cop in LA for 33 years. His son's a cop in LA. Wow. Um, both daughters married cops. Wow. Um, so I was able to glean a little bit from him and I was able to, um, to, he had to, he had to kill somebody. He had to shoot somebody in an alley who was, um, was a righteous shooting, but he didn't talk about it. Um, what I found out from my sister-in-law that it really affected him. And I was that, that experience I put into my second book, um, uh, night, dark fishers, night tremors. I'm looking, looking at night tremors. All they my titles are together, don't they? All my titles are two words and they do, and they're all dark and they all blend together. You're right. Um, but that, that idea that, um, you know, violence has repercussions, not just on the people that are, um, that are the, at the wrong end of it or their family. Um, anyway, so, um, I mean, that's a, an experience in my, you know, not for me, but it, that I experienced as a family member because um, right. it happened when he was, you know, probably his first or second year on the job. Um, but what I did discover is that, that I haven't 
done any, you read my bio, not terribly exciting. I haven't been a cop, I haven't been a lawyer, I haven't been a doctor, I haven't been a soldier. Um, right. But I have had loss in my life. Um, I think anybody, I didn't get published till I was 53, I think. So anybody who of that age has had trauma in their life. They've had good and bad and experienced things. But I, you know, I was able to, and I think all good writers do, um, put that real life, you know, feelings of whatever's happened and put it in a fictional situation. Like I've never had to, I've never seen, well, I've never seen one die, someone die in front of me. Although, you know, when parents pass, if you're there by the bedside, but you know, someone in a, in a violent, dramatic way. Um, right. But sure, certainly I've, I've grieved, I've experienced uh, deaths in the family and some um, one in particular of <clears throat> someone young. So <clears throat> putting that real emotion into the fiction um, I think has enabled me to uh, overcome the fact that I haven't done anything in my life. Right. Well, I mean, it's, it's interesting because even though you don't have that real world experience of the kind of characters that you write, you can still relate to it in a certain way because you, your mind is just attuned to that being a creative person and, and being a writer. Um, I was wondering uh, when you started this and did you have a, an inspiration for the character in mind in terms of an actor that you uh, based it on, even if you don't think they could play the role now, it could be from anybody. But I know when I write, I always have an actor usually in mind who inspires the character. Did you have something like that in the case of Cahill? Uh, I didn't. I, I think that, as we mentioned, all you know, my uh, Reen Chandler, Reen McDonald. I'm mm -hmm. sure there's um, um, Philip Marlowe in there just through osmosis. And um, um, I believe that Archer, Lou Archer. Um, Lou Archer, yeah. I was just yeah. going to say that, yeah. Yeah, I'm sure they've come in and influenced it, but no. And um, I write in first person, and I don't. I don't even know specifically what what Rick looks like. I know some what the other characters look like because I'm looking out. But um, the woman who uh, has had a tremendous influence on my career, Carolyn Wheat, award-winning uh, mystery writer, and, and and she's been a great teacher. Um, she always would say when in a group, when we're in a writers group, you know, who do you picture? I guess trying to get people to really, you know, be very focused. Who do you picture as right. you know, a protagonist? And and I don't, but but I always think, well, what about movies or TV? Yes, I can definitely, I definitely would have opinions there. And I always thought uh, early on, of course, he's too old now, and like me, probably too short. Um, Mark Wahlberg, because I thought mm. in the in the dark in the I could not his comedies you can take him or leave him, but I always feel when I'm watching him in a drama that there's something darker in his background that we don't know about, but I can almost feel like the character. Um, right. So that's the kind of guy I'd be looking for. Um, you know, I probably couldn't even name uh, an actor now who would be the right age and everything because I don't, I don't know them that well. Um, right. Yeah, because I'm old. Um, but yeah, I mean, he's all, that, that kind of simmering, um, you know, the, the boil under the skin it's always it's always kind of struck me when I think about it in terms of if you know possibly I actually sent uh I, <laughs> my first book I found out his found his production company and sent my first book with the first two I think with notes and uh you know but nothing ever you know I mean I have yeah. a Hollywood have a Hollywood agent for that sort of thing but I didn't really know any better but of course nothing happened but, yeah. of course not no no and yeah. it's uh it, but you know what yeah you, you had to take the shot because 
you aren't kicking yourself before you had your Hollywood agent and saying, oh God, if I had just done that, maybe we could have gotten lightning in a bottle. But yeah, right. it's, uh, you, you can never expect too much from from those kinds of things. Um, I was interested in in you talking about how the tone of the first draft changed. And when you wrote that first draft, you said that there was more witty dialogue, that the characters bantered back and forth. Did anything from your sales background or your, your sports licensing background influence that part of it, uh, that part of the, the initial part of the characters before they evolved? <laughs> Yeah, probably because in sales, I was never the hard sale guy. I was always making um, connections. And um, I think that, you know, those, those run deeper, they last longer. You're not just, you know, I'm just not, I'm not just here for this one sale. I have, I have customers that I'm going to have for years. So um, yeah, I mean, I became friends with a lot of my customers um, mm -hmm. and there is that, you know, you, you, you develop friendships, which is beyond, you know, I mean, the, the sales part, is if you're talking to somebody, um, say maybe it's a 10 minute conversation and it's someone you've been dealing with for years, the sales part is probably four minutes of that. And the rest is just, you know, how's the family, uh, how's the golf game, you know, right. Stuff like that. But, um, yeah. And I probably, um, you know, films got, I think films influenced me as much as literature and probably some of those, um, you know, the, the, the repartee stuff earlier, maybe not necessarily crime movies, but, um, you know, the Barbara Stanwyck type stuff, um, where she's a double identity. Yeah. 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 So I'm sure that that had influence and I, you know, I, I still hope that I have some witty lines, but it's just, um, there's less of them. It's less, um, and it's also, you know, you know when you're first writing it, you know, I'm your first person term. Um, you know, the, the all the women are, are are interested in him and he's interested in all the women, you know, I got rid of that very quickly um, right. because it's very uh, tropish and, you know, I think it's kind of, can be, can be kind of hacky depending on the, you know, I mean, the James Bond movies have done it pretty well. Um, right. Although yeah. I think it did, I think it did better when they brought the, the blonde guy in and I mean, the, the latest guy, I'm blanking on his name. Yeah. Craig, Daniel Craig, yeah. where they where they narrow that down a bit, and and um, but I remember. Uh, but however, when I, I mentioned Alan Russell, I when I wrote that first <laughs> poor guy, I was reading thirty pages of the first draft. There's so much they have to read back then. Thirty pages, I got mm -hmm. for a critique. Anyway, um, and Rick and this the love the female interest Melody Milana have sex early in the book, and um, almost every writers group I've ever been in has been me and about four or five women. Um, the, there's been a couple where it's been me, uh, me and another uh, gentleman and uh, three, two or three, three or four women. But so after going to this conference, Alan said, you know, you can't, and this was almost 20 years ago, but he goes, you know, you can't, you can't have that anymore. You can't have the guy, you know, they can't make love um, early in the book, you know, the first right. night to me, you just can't, you can't do that anymore, even if it's a private eye. And, but, but, in doing it, Rick is filling a hole. It's not just he's average guy; he's filling a hole. He's trying to find find love and, and um, attention—not attention, but um, affection, not just physical affection, but life affection. Anyway, he can. So I took it out, and uh, then I, I brought back and read my new ch chapter, whatever it was in, to my group, and all the women said, "Where's the sex scene?" <laughs> so, mm -hmm. 
So I put it back in and it stayed in the book, but it, but it is, it's not just this, you know, he doesn't, Rick probably has sex in three or four of the books. It's never um, really, it's, you know, it's never um, graphic or anything like that. There's always right. meaning for, there's always meaning for, he's always trying to fill this, this gaping hole in him. Um, anyway, I don't know how I got in sex, but I did. <laughs> exactly. Maybe because I, maybe I haven't had it for a while. That might be it. <laughs> Well, it's all—it's like Sophia Lorano used to say when they'd say, "Why don't you? Uh, why aren't you more nude and more movies?" And she said, "A lot, little bit of me goes a long way." And I find that in uh, literature, especially these days, uh, a little bit of a scene, uh, sex scene, goes a long way because if right. you spend too much time on it or whatever, it becomes a distraction, and it's all meant to supposedly move the plot along for yourself right. and for the reader as well. Um, you would mention that you didn't get published until you were 53. And I know a lot of people who listen to us are also aspiring writers of various ages. Uh, why don't you let us know, give us an idea about how you started off uh, on your journey to sure. uh, getting published and what you did to inspire yourself to, to actually commit to a manuscript? It's a good question. I, I just will interject that Sophia Loren was one of my early crushes. Um, she, she still is for me so you know god bless her right um yeah I, as i as we mentioned earlier in my bio that i i've read i've read crime fiction all my life and i knew mm -hmm. when I, my dad gave me that book i mean i really this is what i want to do now i didn't understand that it would take you had to write to become a writer you had to be focused and do the right and i got a degree in english right. when i graduated from college i was going to write you know the great american novel which was awful and it was really about a, a girlfriend who had dumped me and uh which is terrible and it's in a drawer somewhere in a desk i no longer own um <laughs> but i found you know but i had to get a job I, you gotta eat you know and so right. i thought writing because i didn't know anything i thought writing was a, you know when you're inspired you're right and you know that's good for three pages once every two months right <laughs> and so, yeah so I, I, you know, I was out of college at 22 and, and um, job after job, never a career. I was in the restaurant business for years. I was in golf. I was in um, sports licensing. Um, but every once in a while, I'd be doing the writing. And I made the mistake of telling people that I was going to be a writer. <laughs> so every once in a while, they'd say, uh, and as the kids would say nowadays, where are the receipts? Um, right. And, uh, you know, I just told family members and never wrote. So I was working for a golf company, uh, the fourth one that, had gone out of business in 10 years uh, that I'd worked in the golf industry. I saw the handwriting on the wall. I'd been there. I said, when this thing goes down, I think I was 43. I said, when it goes down, I have to um, write. A, I have to take I have a little money saved up. I have to write a book or I can't pretend it's something I'm ever going to do. I got to write. I have to get a career as opposed to going from job to job. And I bought, I didn't even have a computer. I bought a, um, IBM ThinkPad, uh, IBM, use IBM ThinkPad, floppy disk drive. And oh, okay. every day I sat at my kitchen table and wrote. And I thought it was genius. Um, it, it wasn't. But but I was I was doing something. I mean, I, I probably I remember those five months when I was writing what I thought was a book, was really a first draft, were some of the best months of my life um, because I was doing what I'd always known I should be doing, good or bad. And um I think about it now and it just makes me, it gives me a warm feeling. So right. I wrote, I wrote, I wrote, as I said, I wrote this book, um, 
I didn't show it to anybody. I didn't know about writers groups or anything like that or beta readers. Um, I was writing what I called the cocoon. And every day I'd revise what I wrote the day before. And I thought, hey, this is pretty good. In fact, this is really good. And I would, I did take pages of my dad, who um, was a bit like uh, Mikey in the special in the life commercial. He doesn't like anything, especially with those right. children produced. But, but because I think that I was doing something that I was really doing something, something that I was a goal of mine. He would give me affirmative comments. He seemed to like it. So I wrote what I thought was a book, and um, ironically. My a guy I'd worked for in the golf business called me a week after I finished the first draft, and he said, "Hey, we need we need to send on the sales here at the sports licensing company. You want to come over and do it?" And I said, "Well, you know, Eric, I just wrote my book, and uh, pretty soon I'm going to get an agent, and then they'll sell it. I'll buy the house in La Jolla, and I'll never have a day job again. But I'll come and help. <laughs> you. <laughs> I'll come help you for a little bit, sure. And I worked there for 16 years. Um, You're right." So I had this first, I had this first draft, thought it was a book, but I, I, as little as I knew about the biz, I knew that I had to be vetted some professionally. So I met this woman, Carolyn Wheat. She was teaching classes at UCSD, University of San Diego, University of California, San Diego Extension. And I took, uh, I took three classes from her beginning, middle and end novels. And um, I thought it was genius. My dad liked it. And what I found about these writing classes is that nobody's really writing. Everybody's kind of there to get inspired and think they want to write. But I had right. a whole book. So my stuff was on the whiteboard every week and she was tearing it apart. And I thought, well, I'm paying for this. She doesn't know anything. My dad liked it. Um, but anyway, I, I figured <laughs> kind of hit me about week six or seven that eh, maybe she's got something here. So I took all three classes from her. At the last class, a bunch of us formed a writer's group too many of us seven weeks go for hours we didn't know what we were doing but so wow. then eventually I, I got to the point where I'm, I'm going to send out learn the whole you know agent query and all that and um, sent out rejection rejection and then I would revise and revise and uh, I probably did that for um, six or seven uh, six to seven years I would say of rejections always revising mm -hmm. and I remember uh, Betsy Amster a very nice agent in LA gave me more than just your, um, you know, this is not right for me. She told me, you know, I like your writing, but the subject matter isn't right for me, but blah, blah, blah. And she said, well, don't get discouraged. Um, um, what's Kellerman's first name? I'm blanking on his first name. Jonathan Kellerman. She said, well, Jonathan Kellerman didn't get published until his seventh novel. And I was 50 at the time. I think, well, how long do you think I'm going to live? Um, but I saw, <laughs> I was making the mistake of writing that. I thought there was a mistake of you know, trying to write that first book over and over again when the when the marketplace is rejecting it. Um, right. And so I, I finally, after getting a kind of a, a close rejection from an agent, who I don't know, has gotten anything done since. But she gave me some notes and I'd already started the next book. Um, and I talked, I emailed my friend Carolyn Wheat and I said, look at her, you know, look what she said. Do you think I should give this book I'm writing after six or seven revisions another run and she said well send me five hundred dollars and the book and i'll let you know and sure enough a couple know, maybe a month later she sent me 12 pages of single space um, notes and mm -hmm. I, I went one more time through that book and it took me two years and um ended up meeting an agent at uh, my agent at um the california crime writers conference which is every two years in la right Okay. And um, she read the, you know, it was five pages and she gave me notes and said she wanted a full manuscript. And um, a few months later, um, I sent her in the, the thing and she accepted me. And then five months later, I think she got a deal. And it was 
um, like I said, it was a 10 year pro. I mean, it was, you know, you got to write the book first. So really the, the, the submission rejection of agents was, I, I really think, um, it's all hazy now, um, right. was yeah. six, six to seven years, but I think that was the best thing that could have possibly happened to me is getting all those rejections. For one thing, I would have been in sales, like you mentioned. And so you're used to rejection, although it's not your, it's not your product that you're getting rejected, but it gives you a little bit of a thicker skin and the, the business is so difficult that you have to try to find, it's so negative in many ways when you're right. trying to get published that you have to find some positives to stand on. And I'm not particularly a positive person. Um, I'm working on it. But so when you get a close rejection like Betsy Amster, you have to bring it into your writer's group. Hey, she liked my writing. You know, I'm making progress. I'm making progress. So, but right. the, for me, those rejections, I think of somehow an earlier revision, earlier ver version of the book and made it to publication, whatever my career is now, and it's not where I particularly want it to be, but you know, but I'm, I'm proud of what I produced. I don't think I'd be here if an earlier version of the book had been published. I think it needed to, I needed to truly find my voice and just get better as a writer with all those rejections that um, I think it sent me on a much, much better path. Of course, when you're going through it, it's horrible. But right now, it, yeah. just, it seems like a flash to me. And it's easy for me to say that I'm happy how it turned out now. But, you know, it's a difficult process for anybody out there wanting to be a writer. You just got to do it. You got to write every day. You got to get better. I mean, you're going to you're going to get better and get find yourself a writer's group or beta readers. And um, you're going to get better. You, you can get published. Um, it's a tough, long journey. But uh, what else are you going to do? If you love it, you have to do it. You have to do yeah it's kind of like golf in that way too a lot of ah, people yeah. they don't even get uh, they don't get better including myself whenever they try it but right. it's um it, you know anything that you enjoy is is worth putting the investment and in doing it well um but it's it's fascinating that you had a such a, a journey when you eventually did wind up writing the book and then getting it the, the journey you had after that to get it published and a lot of people don't appreciate that it's uh, just because you've written something doesn't yeah. mean it's publishable. You have to put in some work afterwards. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, you've been very prolific since then. Um, you've, you've written all of these books in a very short amount of time. Does it feel like the floodgates have opened and you now finally know these characters well enough that you're going to, that, that you've been able to write this much? Or what what is the... Uh, how would you describe you, your prolific nature? Huh. Well, uh, thank you for the compliment. Um, I, I don't think I'm particularly prolific. Um, I quit my day job December 15th will be four years ago, which I, I have, happens to be my birthday. I quit my day. I, my last, my first day of not having a day job was on my 60th birthday. Um, mm -hmm. I wrote six books while I, was, while I had the day job. Um, so I was very um, disciplined and structured. But uh, not structured the way I write, but just I was disciplined in the time I used. Um, no, the floodgates are locked up. They're absolutely locked up. All the fingers are in the dam. Um, I have to squeeze it out every time. Some books are easier than others. Um, yeah. This book, uh, Doom Legacy, was challenging in that um, I'd given Rick this horrible disease in the last book, which is a pretty neat hook emotionally. Where do I take it after that? And um, I happen to know someone who has been in a relationship with someone they think has CTE. And 
he got very violent with her and they're no longer together. And mm -hmm. um, so it's something that, and, and if you, you know, I'm, I sound like you're a sports fan. If you think about all the football players that um, have died with it, there's a lot of them, there's been some violence at the end of their life. I'm thinking of maybe Mike Weaver from the Steelers on the right. all pro center. Um, you know, Junior Seau, God bless him, our, one of our San Diego greats. Um, yeah. shot Aaron himself Hernandez. in the chest. Yeah, right. And of course, he, he was, I'm not saying Junior, I'm not saying any violence, but, you know, Junior shot himself in the chest. So I think Dave Durson did this, was the first to do the same thing. So his head would be intact so they could examine him. But um, yeah, but but uh, Gonzalez, an, an example of, um, of uh, violence. Yeah, so it's a real thing. It's not everybody. Um, and there's probably a lot of us walking around who have CTE that don't know it. Right. Um, but yeah, so I, that was the next level that I could take it to. And, and you know, I'd given Rick a family finally. Um, and now um, it's not, it does, it's, it's not working well. So that was, I found that emotional hook that made the book work for me. And then I just started doing some research on the, on um, some defense contractors and things like that. And some more, this one's kind of a bigger story than I've ever told. It's got some international aspects to it, which was right. kind of fun, fun and challenging. So always challenging myself, but no, it's a, the writing process for me is very difficult. Mm -hmm. um, there's, there's been uh, only a couple of books that ended up being exactly what I wanted them to be. I'm not saying the other books were bad. They just right. went, went their own way, but um, um, Doom Legacy was, uh, was pretty close. Uh, um, Blood Truth was kind of, I just wrote the book that I, that I, I wanted to write. It was a father-son story, and it was uh, after the death of my own father, and Rick was deep grappling with the history of his dad. Uh, right. So it's kind of an emotional book. Uh, and Blind Vigil was pretty much the way I wanted to write it. But, you know, they take they, they can take their own lives. I mean, I'm responsible for them. I'm right. It's coming out of my head. But, um, right. you know, it's a journey. I don't outline particularly. So it's a journey, and sometimes they go where they want to go. And mm -hmm. that's good. Uh, that's fine. Um, I let my, my first draft is big and unwieldy and I put in stuff I know that I'm going to pull out but for me I have to write this to get to the point I want to get to because I don't right. know any other way to do it um, yeah clear the blockage so that you can make progress right yeah so yeah. uh no the floodgates you know the fl floodgates are they're um capricious they open and close on their own and I have to just keep kind of hammering at them right Right, and also especially because all of your books are told in the first person, and I know you enjoy that challenge, but yeah. it's also limiting too because you have to make sure that you keep the reader informed without having a, a large info dump right in the middle of it that'll take them out of the story. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It is. That is one of the challenges. That, that that's a major challenge. The other major challenge for me is. Um, because I write a series and everything matters, there's carryover, there's baggage, not giving too much um, to new readers that pick up book seven to spoil, you know, spoil the earlier books and not boring my continuing readers. But yeah, um, the clue thing, uh, you know, telling the story and Rick's wrong a lot. And I think maybe sometimes the reader can figure it out, but maybe not all the time. Um, right. That's the benefit of writing first person when the guy's not, he's not he doesn't know everything is that if you mess up something on your own you go well he just rick didn't know that you know it's not my fault rick didn't right. know that. <laughs> right because uh you know you'll get some letters um yes but, you will uh, yeah oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah 
Well, I've already got one for Doom Legacy, actually. Um, okay, there you go. Yeah. Met Gary. Uh, uh, yes, yes. God bless them, though. You know, they give reviews. Um, yeah, yes. so that 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 is challenging. It's it's. I've grown accustomed to it. I, you know, I've written in 20 years in, in first person. After the book I'm writing now, which is number 10, um, I'm going to write something different and I'm going to be writing in third person. So that scares the hell out okay. of me um, with multiple points of view and all that kind of crap. So uh, that is going to be that it's going to be scarier than trying to figure out how to give the um, readers enough without, you know, Rick being on site when someone gets killed. Right. Now, this is going to that was going to be my next question. This next book, is it still going to be part of the series, even though it's going to be third person? Uh, no, the, the book I'm writing it's now is number 10. Different. Yeah, the book I'm writing now is number 10, uh, which okay. is a Rick Cahill book. And it's um, it's called Tentatively Odyssey's End. Um, okay. And then I'm going to pause Rick. As I mentioned, I've written him. I've been in his head for 20 years and I can't imagine right. not writing him. But there are aspects of the business where, you know, you're trying to reach the next level, things like that. And plus, I do think I need a, um, a little cleanse. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I've been, I've been writing this one character for a long time. So I really want to challenge myself. I have a good premise that um, I'm very excited about. I'm excited about it. But so I, I feel like I could I could write the book, but um, like the whole third person, it's going to be really challenging. And um, because you know, in first person, you don't have to worry about grammar much or anything like that. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> when you're this, you know, kind of a distant at some some distant narrator, you have to be a little better at, um, you know, maybe not so choppy senses and and uh, but I'll find my way. Right. Right. Well, that's part of the journey. That's part of the uh, yeah. the growth as a as an artist and as a writer. So that's important. You've got an awful lot of stuff happening in the future. What's the best way people can stay in touch with you? Your website, social media? How do yeah, you find out more of what's going on with your career? Yeah, thanks for asking. Um, I, I'm not very good on social media, but I am. I kind of I figured out Facebook. So um, Matt Coyle. <laughs> um, yeah, Facebook. I, I, you know, I, God bless him. I used to post a lot of pictures of my, uh, my dog, Angus, who passed the summer. And uh, people love the Angus shots. But I do talk about my, my of course, right now with a book coming out. I do talk about right. um, what's going on career-wise, but yeah, Facebook. I'm I'm sort of on Twitter. I'm sort of on Instagram, but um, but my my website is mattcoilbooks.com, and there's always information there. But um, yeah, I'm just about this. I got a I got my tour set up coming in the next couple of weeks, so I'm really excited about that. Fantastic. Well, we wish you the best of luck with everything. We're gonna look forward to hearing more about you, and thank you for a really informative session today. You talked about how reading is important and uh, you talked about your career. And I think a lot of people are going to learn from that. Thank you very much. Well, thanks for having me. I really appreciate you taking the time. No problem. Uh, I am Terrence McCauley, and this has been another edition of Spies, Lies, and Private Eyes on the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. You can always visit me at my website, www.terrencemccauley.com for more information. Thank you. See you next time. You have been listening to Spies, Lies, and Private Eyes with host Terrence McCauley on Authors on the Air Global Radio Network.